Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome. You have tuned into episode number 387 of the most terrific amateur radio podcast on the internet. This is Linux in the Ham Shack, and we're well on our way into the new year, 2021. And this will be our first deep dive episode of the year. And we'll be talking a little bit about building things on your computer, building things with your computer. Anyway, doing some building. And hey, don't, don't laugh at me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to waste some time just because our content is light. <laughs> oh we'll find a way yeah, i'm just, sure uh, we will yeah we'll, we'll be going absolutely so the normal cast of characters is with us tonight i'm russ k5tux i'm cheryl w5moo and i'm bill ne4rd luckily those pops show up really easy in the uh in the waveform <laughs> so <laughs> easy enough to edit out uh but that, that's all there is for the introduction, so now we're going to try and get into the meat of it. And I put up a description of our deep dive tonight as setting up a proper build environment. We might be striking through the word proper at some point, but we're going to talk about if you have a Linux system and you want slash need to build some package from source code instead of using a prepackaged binary file or binary package we're going to talk about some of the ways that you can set up your machine to be ready to handle that whether you're using an rpm based system which bill's going to handle more than me because it's been i don't know a little while since i've dealt with fedora slash red hat slash centos slash scientific linux slash whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's not much different it's not much different there are a few differences and we'll go over those uh but i Use Debian slash Ubuntu mostly, and the prepackaged packages are dev files, as most people are aware. But you can also build things. You can download source code. But in order to... What was that? That was me, sorry. I was like, oh, scary source code. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, everything was source code, and there was no other way to get software onto your system without it. Things have advanced since you then. could just run Arch and then everything was source, right? <laughs> well, yeah, source or uh, Arch and Gen two and uh, what else? What, what are the other purely source based distros? Those are the two big ones nowadays. Yeah, build your own Linux. What was that? The Linux from scratch. Linux from scratch. Yeah, but that's 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 even going. That's like putting the horse before the horse because that's that's like you have to build <laughs> the actual. To build Linux before you, you can have to build, build Linux else. before you can build anything on it, right? <laughs> oh, Arch is not like that, but like the, no. the AUR package system is basically building everything from source in in the packaging system. So right. So let's uh, talk a little bit about setting up a build environment, and we're going to start with the the Debian side of things. 
And let's see, I, I started off with ways to get source packages as opposed to setting up your build environment because in order to build something, you have to get the source code. Um, one of the most popular ways that you can get source code these days is using Git because GitHub and GitLab and other places that store source code repositories use Git as a protocol for storing and uh, allowing people to make changes to and just keeping a repository of source code data. And Git and its uh, earlier companion, I guess, subversion are ways that you can interact with those repositories to download source code. And what's nice about them is they actually keep the source code updated. You can do polls periodically, and that will that will like update any source code you have on your system from the repo. And then if you're if you're building out of that repository, you'll have to rebuild the software will with the new pull code. But at least it will match. It will keep your copy, your local copy of the source code current with the master source code. So Git and Subversion and, are and Okay. I and gonna, I was gonna add with that too, yeah. <laughs> that um Git will also allow you to get a certain tagged version, like very specific versions or very specific releases inside of the, the software repo as well. And you'll notice that a lot of build files and stuff like that, when you go to build something, actually uses Git to go download additional repositories to build stuff. And they'll be pulling down very specific versions of the repository that their software needs to be built against. Um WSJTX comes to mind because it actually does pull two Git repos <laughs> in the process of building the software. So Git is kind of pretty critical these days in your build environment um, and almost certainly is almost already there. I can't remember if, uh, if I had to install that or it was already on mine. On most of the systems I build, I always have to install Git. So it's very rare that Git comes to, uh, you know, predefined. Like, some some Debian installers will run the task cell command that gives you like a a checkbox, a list of checkboxes of things you can install. And I think developer tools is is one of those options, which will do things like install Git. But but generally speaking, by default, at least on Debian and Ubuntu based systems, uh, Git is not pre-installed, at least in, in my experience. And may, maybe I just gloss over it, but I I install a bunch of packages by muscle memory whenever I create a new machine. And Git is like one of the first things I always install. And I don't know if I bother to notice whether it says Git is already installed or it actually installs it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking a lot about Git. It's making me giddy. So, yeah, Subversion is uh, an older version of something that does exactly the same thing. And I've noticed that very few people these days seem to use it. Um, but it does the same sort of thing. And if someone is maintaining their source repository in a subversion repo as opposed to a git repo you'll have to know how to use it it's pretty simple you just have to apt install is it apt install subversion i think it is yes yes uh even though the command is svn the package is subversion so so that's how you get your source code or at least some of the ways you can get your source code. Other ways are just to go to a website and download the source code as like a tarball. I mean, 
that's pretty common as well. Uh, that's how WSJTX does it. Um, I think I think that's how I did. It. I don't remember them having a Git repo. They probably do though. No, the, in the build file when you when you do the making side and you get your make files, it actually goes out and it grabs the repos in the process. Right. So so it's <laughs> so a tarball. Instructions to go use Git are inside the tarball. <laughs> well, that's useful, uh, especially if you don't know how to use tar. Now that's that's one thing <laughs> we didn't talk about here is is tarballs and encrypted archive or not encrypted but compressed archives. Um, are we going to assume everybody knows how to uh, extract a compressed archive? Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe assumption, considering if you just double-click it, it'll extract it for you automatically. It'll bring up the archiver, and you just hit extract all. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty easy. Um, obviously, you can still do it via the command line, but uh, we'll just consider that an edge case. Yeah, and on this list of things, uh, sort of before you get to building things, you might want to make sure your system has things like tar, which should definitely be installed by default, but zip and unzip probably aren't, so you might want to install those just for, you know, grins. <laughs> um, <laughs> and even if unzip is installed, zip probably isn't. So that's, that's something you can uh, you can put on your list. Uh, but then once, once you've got a repo that you've downloaded and you want to build it, or even before that happens, at least on Debian based systems, one of the great meta packages they've created is one called build essential. And I'd say if you plan on building software ever on your machine and it's a Debian based machine, you should always install build essential. I did not list all of the things that are in or referenced by that meta package, but it's quite a few things. Uh, compilers, libraries, uh, preprocessors, you know, lots of things you need to build things. That's kind of the whole point. But in my experience, it does not install everything you might need. <clears throat> it, it makes some assumptions, and of course, there are lots of toolkits out there now, like Qt and Tickle and, I don't know, lots more that I could probably name. Uh, oh, fast light to, uh, to give Ted a little, uh, sunshine because <laughs> he likes to uh, use fast light. Wait, is it Ted that uses fast light? No. Who no. uses, no, FL Digi. FL Digi. That's right. So, um, uh, yeah. yeah. FL Rig. That's uses the fast light toolkit. Fast light. FLTK. Yeah. Sorry. Ted, Ted uses his own stuff, which I think is, um, motif. It's motif or motif. Yeah. Motif, that's right. Yeah. Motif. Thanks for reminding me. Okay, so, well, anyway, we got to talk about Ted anyway. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's lots of toolkits out there, things like Motif and Fastlight and Tickle and Qt and, and all that stuff. And if you're going to build things with those, you're going to need those libraries and build environments on top of the things installed by Build Essential. Um, but those are kind of like individual use cases. And for the most part, if those things are necessary, there'll be a readme in your source code that will explain to you what you have to install or what dependencies you need. Um, so, yeah, the first thing you should do is in your source code, once you've extracted it, you should look for files called like readme, readme.nd, uh, install. Uh, these are usually all uppercase, and you'll find a lot, or you should find a lot of helpful information in those files that will usually list things like packages you need, dependencies you need, um, the actual commands you need to type to build the source code, so on and so forth. So uh, make sure you check those out. Yeah, first. like uh, 
<clears throat> yeah, and uh, WSJTX, they have an install file, all caps. And on Linux, they say the first thing you need is build-essential, <laughs> which, of course, is it's a data package inside of Ubuntu. <laughs> Ted in the chat room mentioned header files, and I'm curious where he was going with that. Yes, header files are definitely part of any build, but I was wondering if he was mentioning those as something relevant to someone who's building something. Because, I mean, if you don't understand the source code and you don't understand the language it was written in you don't really need to look at header files generally but i'm curious why he mentioned that so i don't know i rarely ever look at the source code myself uh, yeah i rarely <laughs> unless i'm like that concerned about it which are the header files well they're the library files i mean specifically from like a c environment you you generally have dot h files which are header files and dot c files which are compile files the .h files are like references to things like variables, and libraries, and dependencies, and stuff that the compile files actually need to do builds with. And then the actual code is the .c files. So, yeah, the, the dev files and the develop files, that's something we're going to get to in a minute. <laughs> but I, I consider the... Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I consider the, the dash dev files the library files, not the header files, even though they sort of are, but I, I'm separating, I'm separating the shared stuff, which is in the dev files with the software author actually wrote, which is in the local source code in the directory that was in the tarball that you uncompressed, all that kind of thing. There's probably not a necessary distinction there, but I don't know. That's just the way I think about it in my head. So <laughs> I guess we'll go with that. So once you've installed build essential, which like on a Debian machine is app install build dash essential, there's some other, um, packages that I always install just because it usually makes life either easier when you're building something. And those are auto conf and auto make. Um, th those are tools. Oh, and lib tool as well. Those are tools that go through um, scripted. I, I guess you could call them like um, the, a make file and a comp. And these auto comp files are kind of like um, recipe files to sort of set up the build environment to properly build. And you need these tools to be able to read the necessary files to set up the build that you will later use a make file or an actual compiler file to turn the source code into a binary. There's also some other ones that are that are other pre-processing engines or compiler preprocessors. Basically all this stuff that happens before the actual build starts. There's one called Yak, which is, I believe, yet another C compiler, which has morphed into Bison, which is the I believe the C version, and then Bison Plus Plus, which is the C plus plus version. And then there's Flex and M4. Uh, as far as I know, both of those are not used terribly often anymore. But these are all like script script parsers and macro parsers and other preprocessors that will take the necessary recipe files to do the work before the work in order to set up your build properly so that when you get around to typing make, everything goes off without a hitch. And generally speaking, these days, if you're going to be building software, make is your, make is your like holy grail command. <laughs> when you, when you've done everything and you get to make, 
that's that's when you see stuff happen. And um, in a lot of cases, you'll see a file in your source repo that's makefile with a capital M. And if you look in there, you can see the recipe. You can see what make will actually do. And in there, there are sections and they have headers. And it's basically just a recipe of what's going to happen when you type make. And it's like, which libraries are going to be called? Which options are going to be called? Uh, you know, build options, which, uh, which libraries need to be linked to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So somebody went through all of the trouble of putting together a recipe for how all of this stuff is going to turn from a bunch of raw ingredients into a compiled binary so that when you type make, you don't have to know about any of that stuff. The author actually put it together for you. And so if you're lucky and you have all of the prerequisites installed and all the libraries you need, when the make finishes, you'll actually have the compiled binaries to run these applications that you want, like WSJTX or whatever. And then usually that's followed with a make install. And the make install is just a recipe for where to stick all the binaries you just built on your system. And generally speaking, in a built environment, they all go into slash user slash local. That's pretty standard, and I hate it. <laughs> um, I don't like the fact, see, because like on a lot of systems, if you've been around in systems administration for a long time, user local is under user, and very, very rarely on systems do people create a separate partition for user local. Um, so that will always wind up under slash user. And so if you need to remove or somehow access all of the the built stuff on your system, as opposed to like the stuff that was installed at the very beginning, the the sort of standard system files, they're very hard to distinguish other than the fact that they're under local. So a, a newer concept, I think, is to use slash opt opt, uh, which is short for optional software. And if you look through most make files, they will give you an option or command line switches usually specified with like dash D, um, dash capital D, or dash dash prefix or something like that, where you can specify, you know, oh, we didn't talk about config, did we? We just kind of skipped over config. <laughs> yeah, when you were mentioning auto config, yeah, auto config, you, you kind of passed over it. But right. Yeah. So, so, so right before you type make, usually you have to type a command called configure. And that that sets up the make file and it allows you to tell the build environment that you want certain special parameters if if you specify them otherwise it will just set up the whatever the defaults are uh, but if you do like dot slash configured you know dash dash prefix equals slash opt for example that's that's pretty standard syntax then it will install the software when you do your make install under slash opt instead of the default which is usually user local and I find that uh, generally more palatable because at least if you install all this built stuff under slash OPT, you know exactly where it's at. It's very easy to create a separate partition for OPT. I felt like you had something you wanted to contribute there. Well, I was also going to say that uh, if it's not a project that uses configure, it most likely uses one of the other tools like CMake, which is what is used for WSJTX. It does have some other additional switches for changing where you want the installation to be. It's a little bit more verbose. So it'd be like CMake space minus, uh, capital D and space and CMake underscore install underscore prefix equals. 
That's <laughs> why it's important that you read the installation instructions because it'll tell you what you need to do and what order you need to do it in. And also what are some of the optional features and stuff like that that you need to do. Most of the time you can get away if you don't really care where it goes and you just basically want to get to the executable. You could easily just do, you know, dot configure, make, make install. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with the CMake. It's CMake, and wherever your source is, you give it a path, and then you run make and make install. <laughs> now, it's not recommended you do it that way, because there are a lot of, like you say, you know, you might not want it to be installed in user local, you know, bin and everything else, or you might want it in your home directory. You might only have permissions to operate in your home directory. You might not even be managing the box that you're on. Maybe you don't have uh, root permissions or whatnot. So you might have to put it in your, uh, in your local directory in your user directory, which is normally your username, you know, slash home slash username slash dot local. A lot of, a lot of software is kind of installing there, uh, nowadays as well. So you'll basically find that as a, as a target as well. Yep. Absolutely. Configure, make, make, install. That's, that's one of the <laughs> great things about building software is usually that's all you need to do. The problem comes when you get to a point where somehow you don't have a dependent library and your build breaks. <laughs> We're not going to do a whole long thing about how to fix that. <laughs> well, there are a couple of steps. Like uh, in the configure script or the CMake, it actually runs some initial stuff. So it can tell you right away if you don't have certain build tools. Right, it'll Especially say like, like do you're you missing have GCC? You're missing GCC Fortran. You're missing, you know, right. so on and so forth. It looks for some very specific stuff ahead of time, so you can initially figure out what you need to get there. And it'll normally error out. It'll show the errors like you don't have this. It, it's not available. Uh, if your terminal is, has color highlighting, generally it's highlighted in a different color, so you know it's not green. Green is good, and then red is bad, and yellow is a is a warning. So, uh, so you can get some hints right there before you even go into running make, which is actually going to run the build script and do the compiling. Right. And really, really good make files will actually go down and give you a printable output that says like, you know, was, was the fast light toolkit found? Yes. Was, um, the header files for a sound found? Yes. And then it'll say like, was the stuff for black? for example, found, no. And then you'd be like, oh, well, I don't have the stuff to build flax. So at least it told me. Um, you can also tell by the build output that you don't have a necessary library slash group of header files. That gets us down briefly into package nomenclature. If, for example, flack, let's say, let's say you're building something that required the flack library and it failed. Well, what package would you install to install FLAC support. Now, generally speaking, this is not 100% of the time. Sometimes you have to just kind of Google for it. But at least on Debian-based systems, it, the file that you need will be whatever the library name is, prepended by lib, L-I-B, and postpended by dash dev. So, for example, if you're missing FLAC, you would install lib FLAC dash dev or lib vorbis dash dev or lib FLTK-dev or whatever it is that doesn't follow all the time, 
but it's a good place to start. <laughs> and if it, if it doesn't necessarily work out that way, you can always say, you know, like Google, what are the flack library files for Debian called? <laughs> and it will, it will tell you what package to install. Or you can look through, you can use apt search and then type in flack and it should pop up as well. So, right. Uh, but generally speaking, the nomenclature is lib library name dash dev, which will be whatever the header files or library files you need to build uh, a certain component of whatever it is you're compiling. Uh, it's a good place to start. So we're going to talk about the differences between that and RPM systems in a little bit because, because they are a little different. Let's see what else do we need to touch on? I have in here preprocessor compilers, libraries, make files, etc. I think we I think we kind of went through all that. Yeah, generally speaking, the documentation for for a lot of built software is really good. So uh, it's a matter of looking at the README and the install, and literally typing what they tell you to type. The biggest problem comes when you're missing a library. That, that's usually the biggest problem with getting a compile completed. And I think we've given you some hints for finding out how to install missing dependent libraries. Um, if I think of any more while we're talking. I'll make sure to put that out there. And the other thing we were talking about, oh, is building source packages. Um, so, so there are repositories for binary packages in Debian and Ubuntu and repositories for source packages. And there's a command, you know, if you wanted to install something from binary package, you just type apt install. If you want to install something from source package, you use apt source. And app source allows you to give the bat, the dash B flag for build, and it will build something from the source package rather than installing the binary. Generally speaking, you don't need to do this. Some people like to do it because the build might be tailored a little better to your system. So if you're looking for some slight performance gains that might be helpful to you, uh, but generally speaking, it's not necessary. And uh, sometimes this will fail because you're missing uh, dependent packages. And I believe you can specify the dash F flag if that's the case. And what that is short for is fix missing. And that should uh, install any necessary or missing dependencies if you're doing well, a source build. That was force. Uh, no, force is force. That's just force. Oh, okay. Uh, and dash F is dash dash fix dash missing. So those are some ways to build source packages if you want to do that. And um, at least from the Ubuntu Debian perspective. So Bill is going to kind of walk us through a little bit how Fedora and RPM-based systems are a little bit different than that. Yeah, I did want to reach back and just kind of go over um, one more time while you're in the process of running your make. And this will be the same in Fedora and anywhere else as well. Um, you know, if you kind of read through the instructions and you're like me and you kind of skim over some stuff, you may have <laughs> missed a package. Uh, and this will happen occasionally. Um, you know, you'll get through, you'll be making and you'll walk away. You'll come back. He says, ah, oh, I couldn't find a sound or something like that. Or I couldn't find the serial uh, port package for cute, <laughs> you know, and you're like, ah, crud. So you, you go in there and you add your package. Most of the time you can add the package and just type make again. And it'll kind of continue the script. It'll kind of say, Oh yeah, I built all that. I built all that. I built all that. But occasionally it won't build because it's one of, it might be like in a crucial step that kind of buggered up the whole process and it won't move forward on that. And sometimes you have to do a make space clean, which basically just wipes out everything make did and starts from scratch. So that, that can happen. And 
I, it happens to me all the time, so I know. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sure. uh, make make clean is useful, and sometimes it's make dist clean. If you want to go all the way back to the beginning, like it, like nothing ever happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can even wipe out all the make files as well if you have to. Right. But uh, but yeah, if you just run a make clean, it'll actually just start all over again, and it'll just keep going. And a lot of times, I'll find if I if I'm too lazy to read. <laughs> documentation which is more often than not i'll just have a series of make okay what am i missing okay let me find that package make again oh i gotta start over make clean make Uh, oh okay i'm missing that package let me add that (laughs) i wouldn't recommend it but it it is efficient it does work i've I've done that more than a few times in my life trust (laughs) me so and and i there was one that i think i had to install like 12 or 15 different libraries that the make file or the readme file didn't say were dependencies and you just kind of have to work through them one by one by one by one until you get the thing to finally install yeah yeah especially if there's not like any good documentation yeah sometimes they say yeah configure make make install you're all set oh and by the way i will (laughs) i will put this out there just so people are not flabbergasted by it when it happens Sometimes you can do a dot slash configure and a make and your software will build and it will not work because (laughs) someone didn't have the make file check for something. The build process actually completes, but it doesn't, the, the resulting binary does not have a necessary library and execution will then fail. That is a problem that you're just going to have to Google the solution to. Um, it doesn't happen super often, but just be aware that it can happen. It's usually because of poorly documented software, but you know, life sucks sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, getting back to Fedora now. So, uh, they just made a change going from Fedora 32 to 33, which of course kind of blew up my idea of what I needed to do for the development stuff because the old, uh, at system development and blah, blah, blah keys didn't work. So they have, uh, Fedora has its own kind of, uh, group install or, uh, uh, meta package of tools that you need for doing development stuff, kind of like the build essential. And this one's activated by, uh, going using DNF, which is the, you know, the package manager instead of using apt for on the console, um, group install and in quotes, development space tools end quote and then the other uh, group is called development libraries and it's very verbose it used to be uh, in fedora 32 it was like at development system and at development something i don't know i only did it a couple times so i, I didn't have to <laughs> put it to memory but uh yeah i was surprised to see that they changed it in, in fedora 33 um, which is also kind of what required me to build WSJTX from source because the build they have on the website for RPM download does not like Fedora 33. It likes Fedora 32. Um, so I'm living in the, the, the cusp of uh, versions <laughs> for support in their build environments. But basically everything that you need for Ubuntu is going to be exactly the same as you need for Fedora for building applications. Um, sometimes authors are nice enough to actually tell you, hey, the package names are going to be slightly different, which they are. Like uh, um, Russ mentioned that a lot of times if you have a library like uh, Flack or Boost or something like that, you know, it's in Debian land, it's lib boost dash something, 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 or lib flack dash dev. Uh, 
inside of Fedora, it's most likely Flack dash Devel, D-E-V-E-L for their packages, or it could be LiveFlack dash Devel. They, it looks like they haven't really made up their mind, which is the way they want to go. <laughs> so you do have to kind of use the search utilities occasionally to try to figure out the naming convention. I believe, uh, let's see, uh, they, in the documentation, they have, uh, the cute five stuff listed as uh cute five dash QT multimedia dev. And let me see what I have in mine. Oh, I'm on the wrong system here. That's why I know those commands looked right. Show. Let's just look at the history here. Uh, yeah, there we go. History. Uh, yeah. So, uh, QT five dash QT serial port dash devel. So, okay. Yeah. They did get all those packages, right? So yeah, uh, you do have to kind of figure out the naming convention of various packages. It may or may not be straightforward. Sometimes, uh, you might miss stuff. Like I said, go back and find it. Uh, uh, CMake, yeah, all those are going to be, uh, straight, uh, straight names. So like when you, you're trying to get CMake or, uh, GCC dash G4 Tran uh, as a package. And almost all the other packages are going to be whatever library dash devel. <clears throat> so, uh, not a huge amount of difference. Um, everything's going to build the same. There's not going to be any different new errors or anything different than Ubuntu or any other Linux system. Cause after all, it is Linux. They're all using GCC tools, um, to, to do the uh, authoring and, and, uh, compiling. And, uh, your, your make files are being built from the same stack of, you know, auto make or C make or Q make. Um, so you're not going to see any huge amount of differences, but the big difference between the, the environments are going to be in your meta packages for getting that initial build utilities kind of all pushed on there. Now you don't need to use that. You can just, you know, sudo DNF install C plus plus GCC and. <laughs> <laughs> everything else uh manually but i mean they have these easy steps so you know you don't have to go through and try to find every single little tool especially if you're just doing a one-off build like the only thing i have built on my system is wsjtx so i mean i don't need everything else and all the other software if i'm not going to build a package that needs all that other software so literally i went through and used the documentation uh for wsjtx and just installed those packages. And that's the only additional packages I have in the system. And that, that essentially should get you going for most of your building needs. And you shouldn't really be afraid to build software. Um, like I say, you, you know, if the, if you're missing something, it's going to tell you what you're missing. Generally, <laughs> there is an occasion that you're, you're going to get a weird error and you're not going to know what it means. Um, but generally if it's a popular piece of software, you're going to be able to find the answer pretty quick as to, uh, what you're missing. So I wouldn't be worried too much about that either. I, I will. Let me, let me interject here real quick. Here's a, here's something you can do if you built something and it doesn't run. And I'm not going into this because this is a, this is like a semester college topic. <laughs> But, but a short thing you can do if you run into problems with a built binary is install a utility called strace. And once you've installed strace, you can run the binary with strace that you use strace and then the binary is an argument. 
So, like, let's say you're going to run WSJTX, you would do S trace WSJTX. Then it will it will run it under essentially a command line debugger. And what this is good for is if there's a missing library, like a missing link to a library file, like a .so file, which is a shared object file, it will tell you exactly which file it can't find. And that can be a great, easy way to locate a library that you do not have installed. It'll say something like, you know, uh, libasound.so.2 not found, you know, before it crashes. <laughs> and then you'll know you need to install, you know, libasound or something like that. Um, so this, this can be a, a super helpful way, uh, an easy way to identify some missing libraries or, or missing files or uh, even a missing executable that something is looking for when you run it. Um, but like I said, there's, there are so many fathoms deep you can go into S trace and we're not, we're not doing that, but it's a, it's a good debugging tool and one that can be used fairly effectively, fairly simply without diving in too deep. Back to you. That's really all I had for, uh, for the Fedora differences. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I can't think of anything else that, that's very specific to Fedora that you wouldn't encounter in Debian land. Or Ubuntu. What, what is this DNF that you speak of? I thought it was Yum. Yum is everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't been Yum for a long time. So. <laughs> uh, it, it was the last time I used Fedora. So, <laughs> yeah, DNF is the bomb. It yeah. gets picked on for being slow, but it it gets it's been it's been getting faster. <laughs> and, and also having a really crappy name. Yeah, yeah, it did not finish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think about all of the skiing I watch. And every time I see DNF, it's like, oh, yeah, didn't finish. <laughs> anyway. You can tell these are computer guys, not sports guys, right? They yeah, yeah, exactly. Wouldn't, wouldn't have used that for something so critical. Don says he's only needed DNF and sent to us 8 and rel 8. And because before that, it was still yum. Yum! Which is the, what What did the Y stand for? I mean, it's the update manager, but what was the Y? Mm. Yellow dog? No, surely not. Uh, I'm curious now because I can't remember what the Y was for I, in in the update manager. It's not yellow dog, surely not. Yellow dog update mod updater modifier. Oh, it was. Holy crap! It was from yellow dog. <laughs> oh, up, updater modified. Yeah, yellow nope. dog updater modified is what Yum stands for. No wonder they switched to DNF. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. The the only reason I ever used yellow dog is because it ran on PPC. DNF stands for did not finish. Da- yeah, we nah. established that. <laughs> nah, uh, it's, the other name is dandified yum. So the DNF comes from dandified, 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 not damnified, dandified yum. <laughs> dandified. So what's the N? I'm assuming that comes from the set third letter D A N. So D D N and then F. It's all undandified. All three of those letters are in that order. <laughs> just you have to drop all the vowels <laughs> and drop and, a D, the extra yeah. D, <laughs> right. and then yeah, yeah. So just keep the first D and then drop all everything else except for the N and the F, and you're all set. <laughs> well, great. So they've they've made the world's worst acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. This is horrible, <laughs> but it works pretty well. I mean, you know, the only thing I don't have is a is a is an alias to. uh you know, use DNF as apt. <laughs> so I could just say apt install instead of DNF install. <laughs> yeah. What was the, uh, does anyone remember alien? 
Oh, you don't remember Alien? I'm, I want to see a show of hands in the chat room. Who remembers Alien? No, it's it's something very specific to package management in Linux. Okay, no, no one's even raising their hand. But Alien was a way to install RPMs in Debian. Here's a, actually a recent article. How to install RPM packages on Ubuntu using Alien. First, you must install Alien. So you get to let the aliens invade? Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so it uh, takes the RPM and it creates a dev package out of it. Right. It, it takes all the meta information and all the the scripting and everything built into an RPM package and converts it to a dev. In my usage of Alien, which was few and far between, it never worked well. The concept was interesting because sometimes back in the day, software was only released you know, one way or the other, like it was only built for Red Hat or whatever, and Alien was a way to convert RPMs to devs. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm almost thinking I have run into this, but I just, I probably cringe so bad. <laughs> it was probably more useful when the systems were closer in parity with each other. You know, you see a lot of kind of, you know, you know, our, you know, Fedoras hangs right on the edge, you know, more closely than the LTS does in Ubuntu. So unless you're possibly on like, the latest whatever rolling build of Ubuntu, you know, this is like now would be the 2010 build. And in a few more, what, a couple more months, it'll be the 2104 build. Um, like that's probably closer to what is the current versions that are currently running inside of, uh, a Fedora package versions, at least. And yeah, you'd have to be pretty close because all your supporting packages, like, you know, think about the read line issues. With uh, WSJTX switching between 1804 and uh, 2004, even uh, 1804 and 18, 18.10, they couldn't go between that. All then. So do we have anything else to say about setting up build environments on Linux systems? No, it's easy. It's not that hard. Or you can just run Arch and then everything's built and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah don't do that <laughs> yeah we, we don't recommend it. Arch. Yeah, if you're going to run one of those things run like um mandriva not mandriva manjaro 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 wow and i have blown up my system with manjaro multiple times so buyer beware <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right so with that we hope this has been at least a little bit this is this is one of those ones where we're just sort of tiptoeing over the line into the deep end <laughs> You know, there's a lot more to building software than what we've covered, but this would definitely give you the idea of how to do it and hopefully the idea that it should not be an episode of Fear Factor when you want to build something from source. It's really not that bad. If anybody has any questions about this or uh, updates or wants to try building something from source and let us know how it went, that would be great. We'd love to hear about it. And if there's something we missed, please let us know that as well, and we'll include that in the show notes. But without further interaction from the peanut gallery, they're probably all wrapped up in that alien article I posted. So <laughs> um, We should probably move into announcements and feedback. And this first one, I think, is might be directed at you, Bill, so I'm going to let you go ahead and handle it. And this one's a little on the old side, but um, we did have a break in there, and we have not really addressed feedback in some time. So uh, apologies for for the fact that this one got kind of backlogged, but we'll see how it goes. Sure. Yeah, this email comes from Robert N5 Bravo Sugar Bravo, or Bravo Sierra Bravo. (laughs) Don't don't do it. (laughs) It's a good thing it wasn't BSD, because 
Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. Bacon, sugar, bacon. Bacon, sugar, tunes, Barry. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. I've been, uh, I've been watching your videos. I have, I run a Raspberry Pi 4 and I have CQR log, FL rig, WSJTX and grid tracker all working. Yay. My QSOs are being uploaded to QRZ and EQSL. I get a message stating that they are being uploaded to trusted QSL, but I have yet to see any of them in my logbook of the world log. The download test button passes, and when I test trusted QSL button, it shows the version number. Just wondering if you might have any insight into this. And this comes from, again, from Robert Schindler, N5BSB. And I'm assuming... Since since you're not talking about the pop-up when you're actually sending the results over to Logbook of the World, it's not automated. You actually have to click the separate little button, and that button pops up a dialog box that gives you any errors from WS or from um I got WSJTX on the mind. Uh any errors from um from trusted QSL uh in, you know encrypting the log or signing the log. Um, if you have a password on your key, uh, it should be prompting for you for that then as well. Like I have a password on my key. I just type in my password and it literally says inside the little box has a little box under the, the thing. It says, if you see any errors, um, <laughs> uh, you know, then read the errors. Um, so there, if you're, if you're not seeing that box and you're probably not going about sending your, stuff properly out of CQR log. So yeah, if I bring up CQR log, which I do have to send some stuff out, so we're lucky here. I may have to address this from the perspective of grid tracker, which might be what he's using. Yeah, if you're using grid tracker and you have CQR log, I don't know what you're doing because you should just do it in one place. Well, grid grid (laughs) tracker has the... Yeah, I mean, if CQR log has the ability to upload to trusted QSL or to Logbook of the World, you probably should just do it that way. But grid tracker has that facility as well. And judging from the output of the diagnostics he said he did, I think he's using grid tracker. Um, The only thing I would suggest... Oh, he said... he said the download test passed and uploaded show the version number. That's what happens when you use it in Grid Tracker. Oh, okay. And the only thing I would say is, if in fact you're doing this from Grid Tracker before Bill fleshes out his answer from CQR log, um, make sure that you're, you have a default, uh, location set in Logbook of the World. Yeah. Um, that's usually where the issue is. Um, make sure it's set correctly and then it should work. But if you're using CQR log, it's it's exactly the same. I mean, literally, you need to have the QTH nickname in there, which is your location for the trusted QSL certificate that you've named <laughs> in your system. Uh, so uh, make sure that's the same. And again, you have a, a full diagnostic window that shows you any errors and everything else and the little upload button there. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like you said, it sounds like he's using uh, Grid Tracker for doing that, which yeah, I'm not sure... I'm not sure. I mean, I guess if, if it's easier to do that way, I mean, cause CQR log also automatically uploads to hampqth, club log, hrd.net or hrdlog.net, eqsl and uh, logbook of the world. Those two yeah. push buttons. Grid tracker does all of those as well as cloud log. Yeah. I, I just use grid tracker to upload all my logs. It just seems really easy. And then what I do is if I, 
I've, I've had a couple logbook of the worlds that have been missed. So what I do is I download the native file and then run it through trusted QSL directly. And that fixes any gaps. Yeah. I don't know. Can't help you. <laughs> I think, I think we did actually. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense though. If you have CQR log, I mean, cause when you're not doing, oh, I guess you can use grid tracker for non WSJTX QSOs as well. Yes, you can. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it, yeah, it doesn't match my particular workflow. So I mean, I just ride everything on my side goes through CQR log. Even if I log it in, let's say a, a Windows computer or something like that on a whole nother computer, I, I bring, I export the log and I bring it into CQR log and then that handles, you know, doing all the uh, QSL management and stuff like that. So it's always done in one spot. Um, but if you're doing everything inside of grid tracker, I'm assuming you can do the same. You can import native from any other logging program. Should you log it el- externally? And then when you bring it into that, I'm not sure if you have to go back and then highlight the ones you need to send out, or if it knows that it needs to automatically send those out to confirm them. I'm not sure exactly how grid tracker works with that respect. Cause I've never used that particular function or feature. Grid tracker sort of only only does it live. If you load data into it, it will not update it. Like it will oh, be up, it will yeah, be updated. So for, be very useful, for right? Me. It would be updated for grid tracker, but it won't update the other services. You have to do it manually. Yeah. So yeah, unless you're only using grid tracker while you're only doing QSOs forever, <laughs> it sounds like a bad idea to to have that your have that your only workflow. I would. Uh, I would consider changing that, but that's probably enough answers or maybe even some more questions for you, Robert. So, uh, so let's, let's just end it there. If you have any more, please send a, send a question back or join our discord channel and you can talk to us live. Yeah, absolutely. We'll try and help you out as best we can. So moving on, we got an email from John G7 VRI. He says, and this was directed towards me specifically because I asked a question. Hey, Russ, a few days ago, I was listening to episode 380. Yeah, that was a while ago. Uh, where you asked for help setting up Nginx proxying of HTTPS to HTTP. Don't know if you got an answer, but this is what I do. Here's the gist of my Nginx proxy stanza. I store this blah, blah, blah in Etsy, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I posted this to the IRC channel, but I'm not sure if it got lost in the noise. It did not. I just have not had a chance to try and implement it. So... I'm going to do that. I'm trying, I'm trying desperately to find a way to secure the connection to the etherpad because it does not support SSL natively and it actually requires, uh, passing through of the actual URL because it uses the URL for, for part of its, um, how it serves pages and everything. So I need to make sure that's actually maintained through a proxy. Yeah, it could just be a giant nightmare. So who, who knows? <laughs> but anyway, thanks for the help. I will get to looking at that at some point and i will let you know if it works or if it doesn't and uh we're gonna bring cheryl in here yay she hasn't fallen asleep me fall asleep never (laughs) all right so uh so these uh messages from coast and uh, i'm gonna let you read them and stop talking because i'm beating back to myself so there you go (laughs) all right bye (laughs) so our first email um in this segment of them is from coos P-E-4-K-H. says, I came across a serious case of Linux in the Hamshack. And he has a Twitter link. Then he went on to say, FT8 signal implemented in Linux beep command. Hope you enjoy this. I'm still listening to LHS, but due to a certain medical situation in the world, I almost don't commute. And therefore, the backlog in podcasts is huge. Coos, P-E-4-K-H. I'm not actually sure I understood all of that, but I think that, I mean, the beep command, like, 
that creates the terminal bell noise. They actually use that to replicate an FT8 signal is what I'm hearing or is what I'm getting from that. Yeah. So interesting. Sounds Not right. completely pointless, but there you go. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for that, Coast. But we have, I think it's Coast because I think the double O's is O, not O, but who knows? <laughs> you say it however the hell we want. <laughs> I'm just glad we have feedback. And we'll go ahead and let Cheryl read the second one from Coos or Coos or however you pronounce it, who has been, by the way, a very long time listener. I don't remember when he started listening, but it's, it's many, many years now. So go ahead and uh, read the last one we've got here. Okay, and our next one from Coos or Coos, yeah, however we're going to pronounce it, says, maybe not news due to my podcast backlog, but another gem popping up on Twitter. And again, the long Twitter link. And he goes on to say, using DMR from the computer, it doesn't want hotspot or radio. You just need to have your DMR ID number. It's that simple. Download the latest version. It points to the Windows version, but as Linux, Mac, Mac OS Windows software from GitHub link. Um, of course, all these links will be in the show notes. It says, uh, software to RT, RXTX, DSTAR, DMR, Fusion, YSF, FCS, uh, blah, 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 all over UDP. It says the software connects to DSTAR, Fusion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all-star nodes. Uh, it's compatible with the AMBE 3000-based USB devices out there, thumb DV, DV stick, 30 DVSI, et cetera. It includes software decoding and encoding support using experimental open-source IMBE, AMBE uh, vocoder software. This software is open source and uses a cross-platform C++ library called Qt. It will build and run on Linux, Windows, and Mac OS X. So now that's good LHS news. Keep up making podcasts. If this item makes it into your podcast, I'll hear that around April at my current podcast backlog rate. Coos or Coos P4KH. Very cool. And I'm hoping that at some point I can do a deep dive on this. There were two sort of really interesting things I found about this particular article or this particular uh, Twitter post. One is that it uses an Ambi chip on a USB stick if you want to, like the DB Stick 30, which I'm hoping to pick up one of these days so I can actually do some of this stuff and maybe connect it to my YSF gateway so it can actually transcode DSTAR. And the other thing is it, several references here to the fact that it's going to support M17. That's kind of interesting, and I'd like to see where that follows through. So hopefully at some point we can do a deep dive into this uh, project, which is called Dude Star, and it will be linked, of course, into the show notes. So thanks, Coos, for your emails, and uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to listen to this before April. But if not, I guess we'll hear from you again then. And thanks very much for sharing these, because they're both really interesting. Again, I'm not sure about the utility of uh, FTH signal using the bell command, but the other one seems really, really interesting to me, so I'm looking forward to checking that one out. So I guess that brings us down to the end of the show. Let's check in with the folks who are listening in the chat room tonight, see if they have anything else to say to us. And we'll go ahead and let you know who those folks were tonight uh, while we're waiting to see if anyone has anything to say. We had Don, KC9ZMY, Tony, K4XSS, Don, KB2YSI, Ted, WA0EIR, Dan, KB6NU, Steve, KA7HVT, and Gene, BX8AAD. So like a full house here tonight. If nothing else shows up in the chat room here in the next 30 seconds while I'm rambling on a bit, then I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode, unless anyone else has anything they need to announce before we go ahead and close. 
dit dit from from Ted. So, <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and call it call it a show. Thanks everybody for listening. This has been a deep dive into setting up a proper build environment on your Linux machine. Hopefully, we've taken some of the mysticism and some of the fear out of building software on your Linux. It's really not that difficult, and we hope you give it a try at some point. In the meantime, we hope you have a great week and tune into the show next time around when we release episode number 388. In the meantime, hope all is well, and we'll talk to you soon. This has been episode number 387 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD73. for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash LHS podcast on the Freeload network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or hamper. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism. Shack and the Linux in the Hamshack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.